Hi, and welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Church Podcast. We want to thank you for joining us online and remind you to feel free to visit our website at seacoastvineyard.com anytime for up-to-date information on our local church here in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. If you would like to give financially to this ministry, whether that's a one-time gift or a recurring monthly gift, simply click on the Give tab at our website and give however God leads you. Now, we want you to enjoy this message from God's Word. that people do doubt quite often when we start talking about this faith, this Christian faith, among the many things that we've talked about over the last month is the Bible itself. I mean, the scripture, what's so special about this? It's just a book with some ink on it. And uh, maybe you have thought this yourself or you've talked to people who think, well, it's just a, you know, it's just a, it's pretty cool that, you know, they recorded all this or made it all up. And, um, but it's just a book full of myths, legends, and, you know, things that people thought were cool. But we like Jesus. We really like the way Jesus is. And we think maybe we can learn some things from him. But the rest of this stuff is kind of weird. And uh, not so sure I can trust it. Uh, many years ago, I'll tell you two stories. One recently and one many years ago. Many years ago, there was a place down here. Some of you have heard me mention this before, called the Little House. And uh, it was kind of the hangout in the 60s and the 70s for all the hippies and motorcycle guys. And uh, that's where I hung out. And uh, before I was a Christian, well, once I became a follower of Christ, I wanted to go back, uh, go back and share this great news with my friends. And so there were picnic tables out of this place at this place. You could get a burger and there was a jukebox outside. It was right near Ripley's here, right on this side uh, on the boulevard. So it was a major like little hangout for a uh, for special group right on, the, right on the sidewalk. And so I went back, this is in the early 70s I guess, maybe 74, maybe mid 70s. So I went back there and, and uh, I'm sitting at the, at the picnic table one night and this is the Bible I had. Uh, it's it seemed a little weird. Whoops, sorry. <laughs> falling apart but uh this is remember i told you i had a big bible last week (laughs) this was my bible from those days and uh i went back and i tried to hide this thing when i walked back i kind of did it like this and 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 i walked up to and i sat on the picnic table and i slid it up under it and i just waited for somebody to come along and offer me drugs because i knew it was going to happen and so i just sat there and waited and this one guy came up and you know he starts talking to me and He's like, hey, man, let's go in the back. I'll split a tab of acid with you. Come on. And uh, when he said that, I just took this Bible, and I went like that. And I said, let me tell you about getting high like this. And he jumped back, and he said a few things. Um, (laughs) He said a few things. Uh, But one of the things he said was like, man, don't go throwing some ancient fairy tale junk on me. You know, that's just a bunch of mythological hodgepodge. Man, I don't know anything about that book. And then he said a few other colorful things, and he stormed off. Now, my uh, practice of sharing Christ developed along the way. I uh, wasn't quite as obvious. And, um, but just a, just a year or two ago, a couple years ago, I was, met someone at Starbucks for a conversation and we're talking about the scripture, and, and I'm, I'm always trying to bring the conversation around to Jesus. Whatever we talk about, I mean, there's lots of things you can talk about, but if you can get the conversation to get to the one that the book is about, 
If you can just get it there, it seems like something happens, something special begins to happen. And, and so anyway, I started mentioning the scripture, and, and uh, I wrote this down when I got back in my truck, but th- this guy says to me, wonderful person, I mean, we had a very deep philosophical, esoteric, ethereal conversation that was all over the place, but uh, he says to me, how do we know Jesus wasn't a nine-year-old African-American girl named Lily? How does that book know what the name was? How can they be so sure? Now, how would you answer a question like that? You know, I mean, what do you say about that? What are, think of some of the comments you've had made to you about this book. Maybe some of the questions you have about this book. Why trust it? Why even believe in it? Why take the time to read it? Why? What, what's so special about this? I mean, the movie was a big hit. Right? I mean, the movie was bigger than anything, I think, recently. The Bible. So there's something, there is something about this book. There is something that attracts people, even though it's criticized, even though people doubt it. People write blogs about it. They say all kind of things. They uh, just totally ignore it at times. There's something about this book that attracts people to the story. Uh, Over in 2 Timothy 3.16... Most people know John 3.16, so just remember 2 Timothy 3.16 when you want to remember a quote about this book. Paul says to his church-planning young friend here, Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And then if you follow it up with the next verse... uh, so that the servant of God, and that's us, many of us, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. There's the reason for knowing it, so that we can be equipped for good stuff, for good work. You know, not necessarily to slam somebody up the head with a tom. I mean, you know, and, uh, but to do a good work. That was the reason that God has given us this word. So let's pray, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, about the scripture this morning. Father, thank you for this series. Thank you that uh, for the faithful people who came out through the whole thing and Lord have tracked along and journeyed with me through this discovery. Uh, We do pray that you would give us understanding this morning. Holy Spirit, you're the presence. You're God in our midst and you can do things in our heart and even in our intellect. You can break through and I pray for that this morning. I pray that the word here would have its work in us through, your, through you, Spirit of God. And so we invite you to come, Holy Spirit, be with us today. Grant me mercy, Lord, and grace to be able to bring your word adequately, God. And I thank you for the opportunity and the privilege in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul's talking to a young guy, probably, I don't know, I've, heard, I've read anywhere from the late 20s, early 30s, a uh, church planter that uh, is going to probably be come alongside of Paul and, and help him with the responsibilities and all. That was the plan, I think. And he's giving some instructions to him. And uh, this guy was raised in a, in a believing home. Matter of fact, uh, as you read through this book, you see that his grandmother, Lois, was a believer. And she instilled in him the scripture, the Hebrew scriptures, the Hebrew Bible. She read that to him. His mother, Eunice, read to him. And I just want to say to your moms, next Sunday, right, it's Mother's Day. And so I, I don't ever diminish the power and the effect that you have on your children, your grandchildren, and others. Because this young man, Timothy, is a direct 
uh, he's a direct result of a grandmother and a mother who spent time with him way before Paul came along and then took up that as, as Timothy became a young man. Then another man came alongside him to take him on in and to walk with him in his leadership and in his faith. And so next Sunday come and we're going to celebrate you grandmothers and mothers and uh, come out and we'll just thank you in a, in a very big way. And again, don't ever think you don't have, you're not having influence Every parent seems to carry a load of guilt somehow. I could always do better. I could always, yes, everybody could have done better. But you did what you could do and you're doing what you can do and it does make a difference. And so don't ever think that because Lois and Eunice here poured into Timothy's life and it had brought him to the point in time where Paul, the great apostle Paul, had come alongside and seen the gifts in Timothy and watched his life and said, Wow, I'm going to come alongside him and I'm going to help him become all that I believe God has called him to. And uh, so he's giving him instruction and he says that the scriptures were good for teaching and that is explaining things. The scripture is good for explaining things. The scripture is good for rebuking. That sounds kind of harsh to us, but we need rebuking. In other words, we need awakening. We need to be awakened at times if we're going a certain way or going a wrong way or if maybe we have something, some thinking that's not quite right or healthy for ourselves. Paul says that the scripture can help us orient the way that we think and that it can rebuke our lives in a healthy way that it's there to, to say, hey, you know what? You need to wake up. You need to wake up. That's, that's not God's best for you. And it's good for correcting, and that is redirecting. Like as you're rebuked, as you're awakened to something in your life, the Scripture does this to you, then it begins to correct you. You feel your life being directed in a different direction. And you go, wow, what is God doing in me? As I read, I should love my neighbor as myself. And suddenly you begin to love your neighbor. Suddenly you can't look at your neighbor the way you used to. Something is changing in you and the scripture is having its good work in you. And then it's good for training and that is implementing the things that you learn. It's, it helps you in some very practical ways to love your spouse at a deeper level, to, to love your children and to raise them in a different way. And, and there's so much good stuff for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in this. But let's not forget this. The primary purpose of this whole book is one, is to point to Jesus. All of it is pointing toward our salvation and the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And then it's here to teach us how to live this new life adequately and well with him. That's the primary purpose. People have discounted this. I, I remember years ago, remember the guy Jim Jones and that whole Jonestown cult and what, 900 and some people committed suicide, so sad I had read maybe within a few months of that horrible thing happening that Jim Jones had in church one day taken his Bible and threw it down on the floor in front of his church and said, you don't listen to that you listen to me now that was the time people should have got up and walked out right there at that moment in time to discredit what we've been given in order to live this life the way God has called us to is to neglect this life of walking with Jesus. This is what we have. This is our guide. This is our, you know, it's, it's the journey. This is where we discover exactly what God has for us and how to live. And so 
Is there anything holy about the ink and the paper? I don't think so. But the message in here that comes out of this, whenever the Holy Spirit, the presence of God gets it and brings it alive into our heart, can change us. It can teach us. It can rebuke us. It can correct us. It can train us. And so um, some people say, well, there's just so many contradictions. I don't know that I could ever trust the Bible. One that I've been asked, and maybe you have, is this. Where did Cain's wife come from? If you have read any of this book, you know over in Genesis 4.1, it says that Cain, Adam and Eve's son, right, made love to his wife, and they had children. Well, you know, it was just Cain and Abel. And, I mean, what, where, did the, where did the wife come from, Tim? I mean, doesn't that prove that there were lots of other people on the face of the planet? I mean, doesn't that prove that it's some process, the, the earth was just populated and in a greater way and not just right there? Well, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure about that. But let me just throw this out to you. Where did the wife come from? Could it be that that was his sister? Don't gag. Hold up. Hold up just a minute. Could it be that that was his sister? Now, you have a fill-in in your handout. Track with me. Stay with me. Because your first one is this. When we read the scripture and we look at these stories and we read this, it is, and I mentioned this when we started the journey, a matter of perspective. A matter of perspective. You have five letters there and they spell out proof. That's five, right? We'll do some really difficult calculus all of a sudden there. Perspective, and I've been using this, this picture of the microphone. Like when I'm standing here looking across over here, if I want a perspective of the whole room and I'm standing here, all I see is this part of the room. I don't know what's over here. And so I, take the, I draw all of my conclusions about the room from this perspective. Well, there are other perspectives. There are other perspectives. And so we, it's incumbent on us as responsible followers of Christ and, and those of you who are seeking and searching and I've gotten emails, I know some of you are you've you got questions, you've got great questions but listen do the work of swinging around your perspective and taking a look you're taking a look at the whole panoramic view and not just one doubting view like there, you know I'm not going to say it. Anyway, there, you know, there are different perspectives. Take the chance, take the opportunity to expose yourself to perspectives. Now, think about it. Adam lived, it says, 930 years. Now, that's a long time. I sat and figured it and kind of did a ratio in my head, and I'm thinking, gosh, if you're in your prime anywhere from like maybe 20 to, you know, 35, he had like 400 years of prime time, man. <laughs> 400 years of prime time is a lot of kids. <laughs> That's a lot of kids. And there's no television. There's no Netflix. <laughs> I mean, really, think about it. I mean, what are you going to do? And so, I mean, there's a, that's an that's a opportunity for a whole lot of kids. Now, think back to this, too. In the beginning, the, we didn't have the genetic problems we have now. There was no disease. There was no pollution. And, and in fact, we're all kin to one another we're all kin to one another it had to start somewhere maybe you're thinking gosh you know it doesn't violate that incest law yes it does which was given 400 years later 400 years later Moses brought this law and said you know no incest at all 400 years of populating the earth in purity in a way I'm just saying there's a perspective okay that's just one perspective there are other perspectives 
But you've got to consider different perspectives when you read things. Because we weren't there when they were written. So we do the hard work of trying to discover it. Another one that I get uh, sometimes is uh, when they're at Easter time, you'll, you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you look at the sign that was over Jesus on the cross. And Matthew says that the sign said this, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then you go to Mark and it says, the king of the Jews. Then you go to Luke and it says, this is the king of the Jews. Then you go to John and John says that it says, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And people go, see, you guys can't get your stories right. You just can't get them straight. You you contradict one another. Is that a contradiction? Because if John's is correct, all of them are correct. If John's statement, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, is correct, it includes all of the others, Matthew, Mark, and Luke in his statement. In John 19, 20, we're also told that the sign was put up in three different languages, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. And so could it be that in the translation that maybe it was stated a little differently? We don't know, but that's another perspective. Uh, Let's say, let me put it this way. I'm standing in the lobby and you walk in, you've never been in here before, and you say, hey, Tim, good to meet you. Is there a chair? Is there a chair I could use for a few minutes? And, and I go, yeah, there's a chair in the auditorium. Well, Bruce walks up, and he hears me say, there's a chair in the auditorium, and Bruce walks up and says, hey, there's actually 300 chairs in the auditorium. Who's correct? Who's correct? Both of us, right? There is a chair in here. In fact, there are 300 chairs in here. So, I mean, do you see this perspective? So, when you start doubting things, work, do, do the work. Do the hard work. Perspective matters. And your second fill-in there is the word reliability. Is the Bible reliable? Is it reliable? Let's just talk about the New Testament for just a second. Yeah, the New Testament has 20,000 lines of text in it. 20,000. Out of the 20,000 lines of text, there are only 40 lines that have any question about them as far as whether it's accurate in its translation or what. 40 out of 20,000. Now you say, well, that's 40. Okay, hold up, hold up. Those 40 do not have anything to do with doctrine. Nothing to do with any of the truths that are in this book. Nothing to do with it. Uh, matter of fact, one of the when I read some of this, it just touches me because over at First Corinthians is like one of the new, uh, let's say, uh, most recently written books that we have in the New Testament as far as getting it close to the date when it happened. And First Corinthians 15 was written, they believe, no later than A.D. 56. Than A.D. 56. Now, Paul was killed, they think, around A.D. 64. So when you read 1 Corinthians, you're reading a letter from a man who was going to die in eight years for the faith that he's writing about. Let me just read just a little bit of this 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 9. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, dead. Nice way of saying it. 
Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, listen to this record, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now that statement is loaded with specifics. Lots of numbers, names of people written within 30 years, 20 some years of Jesus' death. It could have easily been discounted. All they had to do was call in some of those 500, call in some of the people that he's listing and said, is this a bunch of bunk? Is this a bunch of fairy tale? What's going on? And to have produced this and put it out there and written this letter and for no one to have stepped forward and to say that's a lie with all of these specifics? Come on. This stuff just doesn't happen. I mean, what is this? It's like... It's like somebody took a, a lot of pages of history, threw them up in the air, and they all fell down right here, perfectly synchronized together. And the, they say, these historians and theologians say that this creed out of these verses in 1 Corinthians 15, they were passed on to Paul from Peter and James while they were visiting Jerusalem when Paul was there and his, right after his conversion. One of, one of the guys thinks that that this passage of Scripture was written within four months, at least the creed was written within four months of Jesus' death. How's that for an eyewitness account? Is there any veracity in that? I mean, does that cause you to say, wow, man, maybe I need to pay a little more attention to this. Fulfilled prophecy in Daniel, the ninth chapter, we see a very detailed description of Christ that was written 500 years before he would show up. 500 years. Uh, Peter Stoner, this uh, mathematician and astronomer, this professor, took just 48 prophecies about Christ and he worked with it mathematically to try to figure out exactly what were the odds that those particular ones that he had chosen that were proven to come true, what were the odds that they could happen? So he started with eight. He says, well, instead of 48, let's just, let's just start with eight of them and let's see if there's any, anything to really put any uh, you know, dependence and confidence in. So he did eight. And when he worked out the eight that were verifiable, the odds were one in 10 with 17 zeros behind it that that could just happen. So it got him interested. He says, I wonder what 48 I wonder what the odds are of 48 prophecies coming true about Jesus. So he worked it out, and you know what it was? And I can't even fathom this. 1 in 10 to the 157 power. Zero. Just out. Now, I don't know what that is either, but that's a lot. And it's enough to grab my attention and pull me toward something to consider it. Archaeologically, Dr. Nelson Gluck uh, this modern archaeologist on Israel says this, no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. Plato, how many of you were taught that in college? I was, Aristotle, yep, all, all of that. Plato, there are only seven copies of what Plato uh, reportedly said and they were written hundreds and hundreds of years after he died not within 20 years 30 years of his life but yet we take what he says and we believe every bit of it Aristotle there's only five manuscripts of what Aristotle said we get taught it in college and university over and over again philosophy class over and over again 
five manuscripts written 1,400 years after he lived. 1,400 years after he lived. The scripture stands, there are literally hundred, there is over 100,000 documents, pieces of, of papyri and reports and stories and New Testament and Old Testament documents that verify this book that you have at home or on your dashboard of your car or on your iPad or iPod or iPhone. Or what's the other one that, yeah, you're not going to mention it. Yeah. I'm just saying, listen, if we trust Plato and we trust Aristotle and we trust those very smart guys and what people told us they said, why don't we take a serious look at what's being said in here? Why not? Is there enough, as I've called it, actionable intelligence? That's what we started out. We said there's no such thing as absolute certainty, but there's plenty of actionable intelligence. Is there enough actionable intelligence to take this book and go, maybe there is something very special about what's written in here? Maybe I should consider it. Your next O there is objectivity. Perspective, reliability, objectivity. The Bible doesn't pass on legends. It's a very objective book. Uh, over 500 people saw him. Why would they use numbers if they were trying to hide something, if they were trying to pull something over on people? Why, you know, you try to give, you know, if you give information that can be ver- verifiable and you're lying, people take those, those details and they can go and prove you a liar. That's why liars don't use specific numbers and such because they know they can be caught. 500, there's a number there. Those people could be chased down at that time when this was written and disproved or proved. There's names, there's dates, there's descriptions, numbers. I mean, why would God allow so much specificity? Because, I mean, it could have been disproved. If all of this was a myth, if all of this is just happenstance, it could have been disproved easy enough. There's enough information in here to disprove it if it wasn't true. Objective evidence. That means take the motion out of it and just look at the evidence, which that's what this series has been about. Now, we're going to go to another series in two weeks where we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. We've talked about the intellectual pursuit of God. We're going to talk about the experiential presence of God because they come together. That's how God works. And so we'll move into that in two weeks. But this has been about our intellectual pursuit of is this a reasonable, rational, rational faith? I believe it is. Isaiah 53, many of you, we read it at Easter time, the description of Jesus. The whole chapter, if you go back and read it, it's just, it's amazing. In detail, right down to how he would die. Five, six hundred years, seven hundred years before he would die, the details in it. Zechariah 12.10 is a description of the crucifixion, of how it would happen. And you're thinking, well, so what? Well, here's what, so what? Crucifixion hadn't even been invented then. It would be two, three hundred years before the Romans would invent crucifixion. And yet in Isaiah 53 and Zechariah 12, there's a perfect description of being nailed to a tree. Man, this, I get chills thinking about this. Your next O is the Bible has outlasted so many. It's outlast. Objectivity, then outlast. Many have tried to extinguish this, to take it off the face of the planet, to do away with it. I think the la- well, the last one to try to discredit was, you know, the neo-atheist. Um, 
Hitchens and you're talking, you know, uh, I read uh, Sam Harris's book and uh, Richard Dawkins' book. These are all the neo-atheists. They're very smart people, and, uh, but made some very, they cannot, you know, they made statements that were basically attacking sarcasm. That's what it was, just attacking what we believe in order to make their point without any validity to it. I mean, that's what you do when you get pushed in the corner and you don't have facts on your side. You start getting sarcastic. But before that was Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code, you know, trying to discredit. And we went, we, if you were in this church back then, you know, we went through a series. I read the book. I saw the movie. I read through it. I went back to the, where he got his information from, read it, looked at it. And, uh, you know, it has nowhere near the veracity of this book where he got his information from. But there's always somebody advertising and trying to take advantage or try to prove or make money off of saying this is not dependable. It goes all the way back to A.D. 303 when the emperor Diocletian ordered every Bible, every piece of scripture destroyed. Guess what? A.D. 323, Constantine offered a reward for every Bible. said, I'll give you some money if you'll turn your Bible in. After they supposedly turned all the Bibles in, somebody said, has anybody got a Bible? And 50 full copies suddenly appeared in 24 hours. In A.D. 1197, Pope Innocent III ordered all Bibles burned, all of them. And in 1920, Stalin in Russia tried to collect every single Bible there was and burn them. And, and you know what? Russia had one of the deepest deposits of Bibles of any nation on the face of the planet. What about that? I mean, why, why, why does that happen? Why does God allow us to keep this book within reach? Why? And since in the last, you know, 50 years, uh, there have been more discoveries. And you've got the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, the Nag Hammadi script, and all of these different scrolls that are still being discovered and still verifying this nothing that has been discovered has done away with this or has said this is an error why why do we have this and why can we listen to this and lastly yes indeed it takes faith that's your f p r o o f it takes faith to make the step now i used the picture through this series of standing in a terminal getting on a plane I had so many people come up to me and go please tell me you're not using flying because I've got to go somewhere this weekend and <laughs> please please don't use flying as an example of uh, you know of uh, actionable intelligence versus uh, you know certainty there <laughs> but indeed you can sit in the terminal and you can read the manuals for the plane you can even read about where you're going to California, what city, and you can think about what it's like, and you can think, gosh, oh, there's a city there called Anaheim. It looks like this. It's like that. And you stay in the terminal in Myrtle Beach, and you read about it. You see the pilots go back and forth. You see the stewards, and you see the different people in and out. You see the people taking the tickets. You see the plane taxi onto the runway. You see certain people getting on board and leaving, and you sit in the terminal, and you watch it, and you go, wow, you know what? There's good bit of actionable intelligence that says that this plane's going somewhere it's taken I mean it actually goes somewhere it gets me to a destination you know it does no good till you get on the plane there was a in with this story there was a man named William Ramsey 
back in the late 1800s. Archaeologist, brilliant man, went to Oxford, taught at Oxford, was raised by atheist parents. He was an atheist himself. He picked up the Bible. He began to read the book of Acts. He looked at it and he said, what a bunch of bunk. Look at all the detail in the book of Acts. It names cities. It names roads. It names all kind of things. I'm just going to set out. He was super wealthy. He could go where he wanted to, do what he wanted to. So he says, I'm going to go to Palestine and I'm going to disprove the book of Acts. I'm going to disprove that Luke knows what he's talking about when he wrote it. So he takes his whole life and he gets everything he can with him and he goes and he moves there and he begins to dig and he begins to do archaeological finds and it's just, uh, it's, it turns into this amazing journey, I mean, for many, many years. Different books come out of his years there. Two years go by, a book comes out. Three years go by, and something's changing with Ramsey. Now, Ramsey, no, he was a Nobel recipient as well in science. And smart dude, smart guy. He keeps digging, and he keeps digging, and listen to this comment. The more I have studied the narrative of the Acts... And the more I've learned year after year about Greco-Roman society and thoughts and fashions and organization in those provinces, the more I admire and the better I understand. I set out to look for truth on the borderland where Greece and Asia meet and found it here. You may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any historians and they stand the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatment, provided always that the critic knows the subject and does not go beyond the limits of science and justice. Our hypothesis is that Acts was written by a great historian, a writer who set himself to record the facts as they occurred, a strong partisan indeed, but raised above partiality by his perfect confidence that he had only to describe the facts as they occurred in order to make the truth of Christianity and the honor of Paul apparent. I shall argue that the book was composed by a personal friend and disciple of Paul, and this be once established there will be no hesitation in accepting the primitive tradition that Luke was the author. Ramsey went over an atheist, bent on disproving the scripture, and came back a fervent believer after looking at the actionable intelligence. My prayer for us is that you will consider the evidence and that you will get on the ramp and you will board the plane and experience what this book has offered to you, and that is a new life in Christ. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we have looked at your word We have looked at arguments and objections and doubts. But it comes down to trust and faith, Lord. There's a moment in time when we take all this information in and we just have to decide, is there enough information, trustful information, to act on it? So, Lord, I ask for you to work in hearts the only the way you can right now. Thank you, Lord. Let's just pray for just a few more moments.
I think it's great to consider what we commit to. We make a lot of rash decisions sometimes in life. and Maybe out of emotion, maybe out of pressure. But I'm asking today that if you have not made that decision to step across the line in a rational way, that you do it this morning. There's so much more that we could talk about. And in your handout, there's a list on the back side of your fill-in with books and websites that I've given to you to pursue more information. But I just want to know right now, and you can just raise your hand and let me know. You can say, Tim, okay, I get it. There's enough actionable intelligence. I get it. I want to board the plane this morning. Would you just lift your hand and let me know who you are? Yes, thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast from Seacoast Vineyard Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We look forward to you joining us next time on iTunes or at our website, www.seacoastvineyard.com.